Hello, this is Manda O'Fox Gillespie, bringing CKTZ listeners this week's offering from Folk University, the People's University of Cortez Island. This is a recording of the Folk U session at Laneo Farm with uh, Rex Weiler presenting Reality 102, a continuation from last week, Reality 101. The opinions in the following program are not necessarily shared by Cortez Radio, its board, staff, volunteers, or membership. Hi. Um, all right, this is part two of our talk about uh, Reality 101. The first part was overshoot. Some of you weren't here. I'm guessing most of you uh, have a pretty good picture of what's going on in the world today. Um, but I'm going to review a little bit about what we talked about last week, just so that we're all uh, at least partially connected on, on what, where we got to last week. We talked about the fact that climate change, the loss of species diversity, and remember we talked about the fact that, those of you who weren't here, well first of all we talked about the fact that climate change, species diversity, toxins in our environment, issues with fresh water, um, economic um, wealth disparities, and so forth, are all symptoms of some underlying dysfunction or issues with the human population. And we've characterized those gen that general problem as overshoot. Overshoot being when a species, a successful species, grows, such as algae in the lake or wolves in a watershed and so forth, when a species in a habitat, a successful species, all successful species grow. And uh, evolution and nature teaches all species to be aggressive about growing, reproduction, consumption, survival and endurance and so forth. It does Nature and evolution do not teach species when to stop. So when species get overcrowded and start growing into each other, like we see in our gardens, we go out and we pull the, what we call the weeds, the things that we don't want, cut back the blackberries. And that's just a normal part of any ecosystem is that everything is trying to, to expand and grow. We don't think of the algae as being evil because it, it'll grow and consume the whole lake until it dies back. We don't think of the wolves as evil because they'll grow until they overshoot a, a watershed and, and kill off too many deer and then the wolves die back. And I don't think we should think of ourselves as evil because we've overgrown the entire planet. We're just natural animals. We reproduce, we're aggressive, even though we try to be nice to each other. We have policies about being nice to each other. But we're aggressive consumers, we're aggressive about reproduction, and nature taught us to do those things. Evolution taught us to do those things. So we've characterized the general challenge that we face as overshoot. And we talked about population growth, economic growth, that you cannot have continuous growth in a finite ecosystem. And every ecosystem known on, in the known universe is finite. Infinite long-term growth, physical growth, material growth of population, economic growth is not possible. So we have to stop. Nature's default ways of stopping 
species that overshoot their environment are, what are the default ways that nature does it? Death, <laughs> disease, dieback, starvation. So if we don't like those solutions, <laughs> this is our challenge. How do we come up with solutions that avoid nature's default solutions, nature being a very non-sentimental force? We, as humans, as an allegedly intelligent species, um, could we actually design into our own lives, into our own cultures, this contraction? Can we stop? Can we stop growing? Can we stop expanding? we stop expanding our numbers, we're adding 90 million people to Earth every year. Could we reverse that to reducing by 90 million a year? Uh, we're every nation on Earth wants to expand and grow its economy. Can we learn to have zero growth economies? And so forth. These are some of the questions that we're asking. Now remember also last week, I'm going over a little bit of what happened last week because there's so many people here that weren't here last week, and I'm really ni nice to see everybody. Um, there's actually no attendance requirement in this class, fortunately. But so we're just doing a quick, quick version overview of, of last week when we talked about what the fundamental problem of overshoot is. Now remember that the United Nations tracks many metrics, but they track two things that we talked about last week. They track how much does each nation per capita use of your fair share of your environmental footprint. And we know that in Canada, we use about four to five times our fair share per capita. And we know that in places like Norway and the United States and Europe, those nations use four to five times their fair share. And we know that a lot of countries in, in Africa Middle East, Asia, Central America use less than their fair share, half of their fair share per capita of stuff. And when we talk about stuff, we're talking about wood and steel and cement and food and water and all of the things that we consume. We also talked about the fact that on Cortez Island, here in our community, most of us have made an attempt to live what we consider modest lifestyles. And yet we also recognize that even our modest lifestyles, we still probably consume at least twice what would be the fair share globally of resources. Now, the, the United Nations also tracks another metric, which is how well does each nation do in meeting what they call the human development goals? What are the human development goals? Um, low uh, or high survival, birth survival rate, um, health care, uh, human rights, gender rights, economic opportunity, education for everyone, and so forth. These are the United Nations goals that they would like to see and hope that all cultures can achieve. And we saw a chart, and I guess really I should show that chart. This is ecological footprint, and we can see Norway and Canada, and the wealthy nations out here. We've all met, this is the Human Development Index, 
These countries all meet the Human Development Index, healthcare, education, and so forth. But to do it, countries like us are using the the fair share. The fair share of the, our ecological consumption would be two hectares uh, footprint per person, and we're using in the range of seven, eight, and nine. So that's why I say four to five times. These nations are all quite successful in living below their fair share footprint, but these are these, especially these African nations, these are the poor nations who consume a lot less stuff. But it's harder for them to meet their development goals. There's one country. Don't give it away if you were here last week. There's one country <laughs> that actually made it into the magic box. They've met all the human development goals, spending less than their fair share of ecological footprint. Those of you who weren't here last night, raise your hand if you think you know what that country might be. Costa Rica. Costa Rica is a very good guess. Cuba, Cuba very good guess. Bhutan. Bhutan. Yes. Countries like that. The actual country, Cuba, we have a winner. <laughs> I think this is an interesting sort of social and ecological fact. It's at least an attempt to quantify meeting our development goals and doing so with low consumption. And there's only one country in the world that has actually achieved that, although there are a lot that are very close, and they're all countries like we just named. They have low consumption and they meet their human development goals. So that gives us an indication of the kind of lifestyle that might be possible if everybody on earth could live a fair and decent life, meeting our educational <coughs> goals, meeting our human development goals, and living within the constraints ecological constraints of the planet. The idea that we could have seven and a half or eight or nine billion people living the way we do, even on Cortez Island, that's probably not realistic. Does that make sense? So that sort of catches us up to where we are here. So last week we talked about all of this and we talked about these challenges and, and the important point we, we wanted to mention was that yes, we're in a, in a climate crisis, but we're not just in a climate crisis, we're in a biodiversity crisis, we're in a toxin, toxins in our bloodstream crisis, we're in a freshwater crisis, we're in a refugee crisis, we're in a uh, uh, wealth disparity crisis, and in a lot of places in the world, we hear from governments and institutions that we're in an emotional crisis and that, that stress and trauma among everybody, young people particularly, uh, is increasing. We're in, we're in an array of crises and we're characterizing them as overshoot. So that brings us up to today. Because now we're gonna talk about so, <laughs> what do we do about all of this? Now remember we talked about Merv Wilkinson. And some people here remember Merv, he died about a decade ago, but he managed uh, 75 acres of forest down in Shimanus, 
uh, his entire adult life, he made a living, modest living, his entire adult life logging this forest. He had more standing timber the day he died than when he started. And we held this up as an example of what the kinds of things we need to do to move forward. And Merv actually came to Cortez Island in the 90s. And this is when we were just beginning to develop the idea of a community forest. And uh, remember this, the comment that he made when we were walking through the forest and he was telling us all about the intricacies of which trees you could take and which were the best trees to take to select for, for harvesting. And he turns to us and he says, this is really pretty simple, he said. You just cut below your growth rate. Cut below the growth rate. Now this, I, I think of it as the Merv, Merv Wilkinson principle. And this applies to everything we do. There's plenty, we already talked about the fact that everything in nature overgrows. So there are apples to pick, there are blackberries to pick, there is farmland that we can grow food on. But what we cannot do sustainably is we cannot cut above the growth weight. We can't take more nutrients from the soil than are being replaced back into the soil. We can't take more trees from the forest than are, than are growing in terms of, of uh, board feet or cubic meters or however you want to measure. We can't take more fish from the ocean than are being replenished. If we do, which we all know we have been doing for centuries, then we're depleting our capital stock. We need to be living off the interest. We need to be living off the overgrowth of nature, not cutting into the capital stock. Does that all make sense? So now we have this fairly complex dilemma. We have 7.7 billion people. We're adding 90 million new ones every year. So we got 90 million new people next year, 90 million new people the year after. We want common decency. We want fairness. We want to help the poorest people in the world have a decent life. At the same time, Another, another stat that, that we talked about last week was the fact that of all the mammal biomass on Earth, 96% of the biomass on Earth are humans and our livestock. 4% of the mammal biomass on Earth is everything else. The wolves, the cougars, the rats, the beavers, all other mammals, 4%. Humans and their livestock comprise 96%. So we've got this, this mass of humanity that is continuing to grow. We have an unfairness in our world where we have uh, about a billion people who live more or less like we do, you get to eat every day, get to take hot showers or hot baths. You live in a nice warm house and you're not, you don't have bombs exploding in your neighborhood. About a billion or a billion and a half people live that way. The other seven billion people are either the hardworking poor living in extreme poverty and many living on the edge of starvation. And about 10 million people a year actually starve to death. So we want to solve that human problem. We want to solve our ecological problem, but we can see that there's a conflict. There's a fundamental conflict. 
if our population continues to grow by 90 million people every year and we want all those people to have more stuff, how do we solve the environmental problem on the other hand? So this is, this is the issue we're, we're, we're dealing with. Now just kind of as an exercise, I'm wondering, would it be too confusing to just break up into, into about four groups for a minute? We can do it? <laughs> y yes or no? Positive attitude. What I would like is to have four groups, and here are the groups. The economy, health, social welfare, and this group is the environmental group. Here the group split up to discuss solutions for approximately 20 minutes. Okay, the time pressure is not an accident. The time pressure is um, part of what we as a, as, a, as a human community are dealing with. I never, ever say we have 12 years to do this. I never say we have, we have to do this within 20 years. We had 20 years about two centuries ago. I feel like we have 15 minutes all the time. Like we don't have, like we're, 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 we've overshot the capacity of the planet. We're over the line, we're over the mark, we're out of bounds. So we're already gone too far. So all of it is walk, to, in, in my perspective, is this walking back to something that's manageable and sustainable. So anyway, the time pressure is important for us to understand that we can't dawdle like we have been. 40 years we've been having climate meetings. You know the first climate meeting was 40 years ago? The, inter the uh, international meteorolo meteorologists met in Geneva 40 years ago for the first climate meeting, 1979. 33 climate meetings in 40 years. Human carbon emissions have doubled during that time. So, so much for meetings, international meetings with politicians. Here the group breaks down into discussion, and here are a few highlights. So we talked about um, a couple different things. Well, we talked about a lot of different things, but really it came down to, I'd say, two main things. How are we going to incentivize people to want to live with less? So how to ratchet back more to a, a modest lifestyle? And how do we encourage people to do that? And then the other part was how to redistribute wealth. Because there's a big disparity right now. And with that, we need to deal with that some way as well. So we talked about lots of different things. For example, with the redistribution of wealth, we talked about uh, universal standard income so that uh, everybody would have their basic needs met which would probably involve a lot of heavy taxes with the people who make a lot, but then providing enough for everyone so that they could um, live a modest lifestyle. Um, we also talked about sharing resources in a communal way so that um, not every house needs three toilets, that sort of thing. Um, and another crux of the problem is how do we get away from oil in a way that makes sense because it enhances human productivity so much that um, it's led to this big bubble that we're now in and how do we uh, replace that or scale back from that in a, in a reasonable way. Um, so 
like the economy group said, it it boils down to a few things, and one of those big things is basic needs, right? Food, shelter, clean water, clean air. Those are all sort of basic needs, the needs everybody needs, right? But, so some solutions, I mean, there's other things. Education is a big one we talked about. Um, but kind of like, like the economy group said, may, some way of supplying, every, so everybody has those, those needs met, some sort of sharing of both resources and technology, right? You could have the technology but not have the resources or not have of the technology but have the resources. So you, you can't just share one. You need to share both, right? Because one without the other doesn't work. Composting and recycling technology is a big one because we do have like a waste problem. So yeah, we have the problems, clean air, clean water, disease control. Nutrition was the one we talked about. Like not necessarily, somebody said two meals a day, but it's, it was mentioned it's not necessarily the number of meals, but more the calories and the quality of the meals. So you could have, say, one meal a day, but if it's a really good meal, right, rather than having, say, three not very good ones, that, that could actually be better. Nutritional education, education <coughs> came up a lot. One thing Rex had talked about last week, eliminating war and violence. That's a big one, so the resources can get where they need to be. Um, mental health was talked about. Slavery, ending slavery. Somebody mentioned seed banks. Education, big one. Eliminating isolation. Elder care, population control, obviously. Access to education, you can see education is coming up a lot. Reliable transportation, right, if you need to get to healthcare. Um, transparency, local control, so it's not some big corporation reaching out, it's more on a local scale, like a local, somebody who knows the area, right? Um, personal empowerment, leadership, planting trees, in, in light of the fact that uh, so many people are being displaced because of global warming. Right, we forgot to write that one down. <laughs> um, there will be more chances for <coughs> exposure and dis disease and um, mm -hmm. so some kind of mitigation towards global warming to prevent that from happening. First word is water. And stop and disperse the police. Window, power, filler, hydropower, carbon tax, biogas digester, meat production, reduce meat production, eliminate factory farms, micro, 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 micro remediation. Yeah, right. Thank you. Replanting trees, hemp, etc. Less transportation, reducing human consumption. We have consumption from birth to grave. Concave mirrors and greenhouses. Stop war. Military intervention. Train and educate others. Involvement in environment. Environmental service rather than military service. Relevant education 
value the body, the mind, and the spirit in the environment, not just after science and math. But math and science should be relating to the environment also. Voluntary population reduction, CFAC. There should be a Ministry of Environmental Protection. So it went from all of these little things to education. Value the environment top down and bottom up. Uh, grassroots, community based, environmental sanctions. And the education service again, gap year, learn echo skills, environmental education at every level. Stop wars. That marks the end of the discussion period, and Rex takes over from here. Well, this, this was interesting. Okay, one of the, the purpose behind this, and we could spend all day, for, by the way, and I've done this before doing this, dividing up into groups. I've done it where we spend all day, and you can go from group to group, and there's more groups, like there are eight or ten groups. And the idea is to help us get out of our habitual way of addressing these issues, by taking on the responsibility of a perspective, healthcare, social welfare, economics, and so forth. Um, and so that's sort of the purpose of that. And it's very interesting to me, some of the items that came up for people consistently among all the groups, sharing almost, I think sharing came up in every group. <laughs> sharing, like the sort of, and this is perfect. I mean, this is the sort of way I think we need to begin to think. 
we, we live in a, in a culture that we've been inculcated with um, personal freedom and capitalism and uh, individual success and winners and losers. And I think that's a very destructive thing. That's part of what's, what's going wrong in the world. And it's part of what I love about Cortez Island, where we actually, at least to some extent, uh, even though, yes, we do have private properties still and so forth, um, but there is this sort of sense of sharing and giving to your neighbor and helping your neighbor. And also there's a comfort in being able to, re I know if some tragic event befalls my household that I'll have help, uh, immediate help by my neighbors. And I know that because it's happened. <laughs> and I have had immediate help from my neighbors. So all of those, the, the, the sharing meme is a good one. Um, and of course, things like taking care of each other, universal income, health care, uh, education comes up a lot, and this came up a lot in this discussion. Um, there's, there's one uh, thing that I wanted to mention about this discussion is it's, there are, a lot of things came up, uh, such as education, um, nutrition, uh, universal income, health care. And these ideas are focused on the human community, which is fair enough. We're people. We care about our fellow humans. And we want, we want a fair and decent world. Um, so... Uh, so these ideas are all completely appropriate. Um, but don't forget, when we talk about health, we can reframe health. Health doesn't necessarily mean human health. Health could mean that if we had a healthier ecosystem and if every species on the, on the planet was healthier, we'd be healthier. Same with economics. We think of economics as human economics. Um, economics, we, the, the idea of economics, of the movement of uh, materials and energy and resources, the, the, there's also an ecological economics that's going on all the time with or without us. Um, and same with, now we said, we, I said specifically social welfare. Uh, and when we think of social welfare, of course we think of the human community. But welfare, but we can also expand what we mean by society and by the self uh, and the community. And the community can include our non-human relatives. So when we talk about welfare, we can also extend this uh, beyond. And also when we talk about ecology or environment, it tends, to, it tends toward taking care of the human community. But again, we can have ecology for its own sake, for the benefit of the, our non-human community. Russ, what were you going to say? That's a beautiful thought and a beautiful idea. That the trauma that we feel as humans, we know that that trauma can be passed on to other humans. We, we, we know enough now about how trauma works that it, it can pass down through generations. And oftentimes the abused become abusers, the traumatized become traumatizers. And, as Russ has pointed out, this trauma can leak out into the, the non-human world, or the more-than-human world, as David Abram would say. Um, 
our trauma can leak out into the way we treat the environment. When, in fact, a robust, healthy ecosystem with a stable food supply, uh, even though we might think of uh, life of our early ancestors or e and even our primate ancestors as being a tough life living out in the woods, um, there's also the comfort of an ecosystem that we know can feed us. I mean, people in our modern world are worried, people are worried about losing their job. What happens if you don't have money? How do you eat? Can you go out in the woods and feed yourself? And I, most of you may know, and I know, I've worked with communities who live in the Amazon forest, for example. They don't want industrialism. They're happy where they are. They want to be left alone. That's what they're fighting for, to be left alone, not to be included in having more stuff. They've seen enough of the industrial world. They don't want it. They want to be left alone because they know they can survive in their forest if they have enough forest because that's their home, that's their pharmacy, that's their supermarket. That's how they eat, that's how they live. So there's that perspective as well. Industrial farming is an example, the way we're farming the world right now is an example of cutting above the growth rate because we're mining our soils, we're mining the carbon and nutrients from our soils and it seems like, party on, we're doing really well, um, but the so-called green revolution that has produced a higher farm productivity has also depleted our soils. And, we, and also it has increased the erosion of our soils. So we've lost physical soil, we've lost nutrient and carbon content within our soils. Uh, I read somewhere that the soils in North America were, had 50% of the carbon in them that they had 400 years ago. So we've mined half the carbon out of our soils. So what, do we have another 400 years? What, what do we do then? So these are the sort of questions that come up around this. Uh, and, you mentioned dead zones. Dead zones. Dead zones in the ocean from our nutrients. And, and you know, even here on quiet little Cortez where we have a relatively small community, we are already dealing with nutrient loading in our lakes uh, that uh, increase and in feed algae blooms and so forth. So, um, all the, it's it's relentless. Rust never sleeps, as they say. But I know we now we talked. So I'm going to go through just quickly some of some of the things that came up in this, and, and I had I had some other comments. One thing about okay, one thing about living modest lifestyles. This came up several times in this discussion we just had. Living a modest lifestyle. What is a modest lifestyle? What is a fair ecological footprint? And is a fair ecological footprint the same thing in Cuba that it would be in Norway or uh, Northwest Territories? And what does that mean? And so, uh, so how, do we, how do we balance that? And we want to make it fair for the humans, but from an ecological point of view, we want to make it fair for every other species, too. And, and that's, this is the, where we come into conflict. This is the tricky part, because we can make it more fair for humans by, say, cutting down more forests and having more agriculture and feeding more people. But that means we're, you know, that 4% mammals are now non-human, uh, or 96% of the mammals are, mammal biomass are humans and are and our livestock, 4% for everything else. But if we cut into the forest and for more farmland, that 4% goes down to three, down to two, and where does it go? Um, so modest consumption, and I want to give some examples. Um, 
the Amish. I've had a theory for years that industrial civilization is going to meet the Amish on the way back down, <laughs> on the back side of the curve, and the Amish are going to be going, and not just the Amish, but, but people who know how to farm simply with their hands and with handmade tools that they can repair, you know, they're going to be there when, when industrial civilization's on the downside, they're going to be there going, oh, hi, <laughs> do you know how to fix a wooden wheel? Yeah. Um, do you know how to make a plow? Uh, do you have a seed bank? Seed banks came up two or three times just now. Seed banks are critical. Do you know how to repair all the tools you have? If you have tools you don't know how to repair, they're not going to be very useful for very long, and so forth. Um, I mentioned uh, people who live in the forest. I've worked with some people in, in the Ecuador Amazon, and I'll just repeat what I said, but literally, they don't want our stuff. They expressly want to be left alone. And people that I've worked with, their lands have been contaminated by pollution from Chevron oil operations. So they've actually lost their pharmacy and their stores and how they survive is the land. So when the land gets contaminated, they've lost that. So what they're asking for is not to be included. You know, Chevron wants to pay them off. They don't want the cash. They want their forest back. So there are people, as a model, there are people on Earth whose life goal is not to have more stuff and not to have uh, the self, the uh, iPhone 24 or whatever is next. And we can do this, of course, in our own communities, community gardens. Most of us have gardens. We, we know about that. We, we looked at this picture last week. Uh, we realized this isn't wilderness. But at least it's an attempt. This is in Asia somewhere. But anyway, um, the point is, uh, this is a community that obviously is trying to live locally and seems to be doing at least a half-decent half job with it. Um, okay, here's one of the things that, that I want to bring up as important, I think, in the solution is, is to fall in love with the natural world. Trust the natural world. Be in love with it like we love our family. And, and feel, and I know most of the people here do. I mean, we live in a place where we live here because we love the natural world. But I think we also also know that in that <coughs> industrial, money-making, high-speed world out there, we've lost this sense of, of love and respect for the natural world. And I think that I've often suggested, and I still believe this is true, that we're not going to find the solutions until we learn to apprentice ourselves to this wild natural world. We have to stop trying to manage our ecosystems, and we have to become students of the ecosystems. And I think our attempts to manage the ecosystems, that's actually more part of the problem than part of the solution. There's a lot of the geoengineering ideas that we're going to put little sulfate umbrellas in there and keep the sun from heating up the earth. Well, the sun's not heating up the earth. What's heating up the earth is our effluents. Right. So the idea that we're going to 
somehow geoengineer or in engineer our way out of this in any way whatsoever. We're not going to engineer our way out of this. I'm pretty confident of that. That doesn't mean that technology is not helpful. It is. And we can invent technologies and we can produce technologies that are very helpful. Um, but I think we also need to think in terms of technologies that are, that are at the scale that communities can use them and repair them and look after them and maintain them. Like if we have technologies that require a massive industrial machine to maintain them, uh, that that is in fact a problem. Um, so loving nature. Now sharpening the sword. What does this mean? Um, it's a Buddhist concept. Sharpen the sword um, in Buddhism means you're the sword. Before you go, the, 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 um, the metaphor is a bit martial, military, it, sharpen the sword before you go into battle. But we're not talking about actual literal sword battles. You are the sword. And if we are going to become the agents of change, we've got to keep the sword sharp. And that means quieting your own ego. This, this is from the Buddhist perspective. Quieting the ego, meditating, um, not always worrying about what you're going to get or if you're going to get recognition or if you are going to be appreciated. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we all go through this. That the more we quiet our own ego, the more effective agents of change we become. And if we pretend and expect and want to go out into our community and actually help, we have to sharpen the sword. We have to quiet our own ego. We have to find a stillness within ourselves. I don't know, those of you who have been involved in any kind of social activist group, environmental groups, uh, community groups trying to help each other, I don't know, but I'm guessing you have had similar experiences that I've had, which have taught me that the weakest link is always us. Where we fail is where we get into conflict over who's in charge, who's right, who gets to speak, who's the spokesperson, who gets the recognition, who gets their name in the paper, all the ego stuff. That's where the efforts collapse, in my experience. So sharpening the sword is, and it's something everyone can do. Meditation, staying calm, <coughs> talking with your friends about how to work well together. And I think that this sort of idea of building cohesive relationships, cohesive community, um, I think as the industrial model crumbles, that it's cohesive communities with people who have matured and have quieted their own ego that are going to be in the, in, in the best place to survive. In fact, I think these people are the most resilient on the earth. If industrial civilization, we wake up tomorrow morning and there's an international financial collapse and the whole thing's going downhill and there's total chaos in the human community, their life improves, right? Mm -hmm. So they're the most resilient. The least resilient are people that live in the city and live in 
and have no access to land or fresh, clear water and rely on stores that are going to be out of food in three days. You just came from there. <laughs> the power, power failure in the Bay Area. Yeah. Catastrophic. Catastrophic. Power failure on Cortez we can deal with for 10 days at a time if we have exactly. I was. I was, in, I was in San Francisco, and they had their first power failure in, in the north. And I was there, and everybody's going, oh, my God, there's a power failure. And they were all going nuts. And I was sitting around talking to people, and I go, yeah, well, where I live, we have about a dozen or half a dozen power failures every year, sometimes for three or four days. Oh, my God. No, I said, no, no, you, I, I'm, say, I'm saying to them, no, no, you get used to it. <laughs> but if you're caught in a supply chain deficiency where all the food in your fridge and freezer has spoiled, you have no ability to buy more food because there's no uh, re refrigeration or freezing in the markets where you would buy the food from, that's the situation. That's a problem. Exactly, exactly. So that's why, that's why I say these people are the most resilient on Earth. These people, roughly types of people, are the next most resilient. Their life might improve when there's an international uh, industrial collapse. All right, personal lifestyle. I think making personal lifestyle, uh, th these are friends of mine in Oregon who have an organic farm. Um, they live, you can see they live more or less like we do. They plant food, they live modestly. They loved our idea, by the way. I told, whenever I tell people about our free store, they just go nuts. I, they, they started a free store where they are uh, based on our free store. I'm amazed how many places don't have a free store. <laughs> it's a very rare thing. Um, personal lifestyle choices, I think, are absolutely important because when we make personal lifestyle choices, we become an example for that world that's completely unsustainable. So if we live more modestly and we show the benefits of living more modestly, you know, and there's been lots of studies done, and I'm sure you're aware of this, after your basic needs are met, more stuff does not result in more happiness. The average billionaire or the average, you know, super busy multimillionaire urban person is not necessarily more happy than somebody that, that lives on one-tenth of the income. That happiness is related to other things. It's not related directly in any way really to income. There's been tons of studies done about this. And is it uh, Bhutan that has the happiness index now? Yeah. yeah. So somebody gets it. Like we should be having a happiness index, not the, the gross, gross domestic product. We shouldn't be measuring our community by how much stuff we waste. Yes. On that, my brother went to Nicaragua many years ago during the war, and he said, and he lived with a Nicaraguan family, he said, amazingly enough, even though they were at war with, with you know, the United States was sending people down there to, to uh, do away with their government, but he said, in spite of that, they were the happiest people he'd ever been around. Yeah. I remember having that experience in Mexico years ago when I was much younger, but I remember going to Mexico and living in this, to me, this poor little village. And, that, and you know, we used to get uh, chapatis. They don't call them chapatis in Mexico, do they? Uh, uh, tortillas. Uh, we used to go get tortillas, and there's a little woman in this little house, and it's like boom, 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 yeah, you know, 
tortillas coming out. She was always, ha you know, the dirt floor, the, you know, the kids, like, the old guy out in the chair, you know, sitting there, and, you know, they were happy, they all seemed happy, and she was happy to see this, and happy to make tortillas, and the kids were playing, and I just was struck by how happy everybody seemed, and they were, from my perspective, dirt poor. So that, that taught me that, or, or at least put that thought in my mind. Okay, it's about 2.30, and I think we have to, have to wrap this up, but I'm gonna, I wanna mention a couple of ideas. One is we have to accept how complex this is. No silver bullet. I think we all recognize when we were trying to come up with a, the solutions that we're all over the map and one solution may have negative feedbacks that go the other way and cause other problems and we have to be, you know, a lot of, this, a lot of the problems that we're dealing with are the problems that resulted from earlier solutions. In, in other words, the, the industrial farming was supposed to be a solution. And now we're dealing with the problems from those previous solutions. So accepting the complexity of this and realizing that, that we're not going to come up with some simple little program. I've heard so many people say to me, and you've probably heard this before too, someone says, well, if everybody would just, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. If everybody would just meditate 30, day, 30, hour, 30 minutes a day, or if everybody would just use less stuff or whatever. The idea that everybody in the whole world is going to do your idea, the probability of that approaches zero. So anyway, accepting complexity to me is an important part of dealing with our, our challenge. And to me, the most important one is to take care of each other. And I think that's critical because no matter what happens in the world, Ultimately, we're going to rely on our families, our communities, our friends. And so, again, this is more reason for building resilient communities that can, can be resilient and endure through whatever happens. I'm fairly certain that industrial civilization as we know it is essentially going to decline and collapse. And it may take two, another 200 years. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow morning or... We don't, it's not like I'm going to say we have 20 years or we have 10 years or any number of years. It's just, all, it's just by necessity on its way down because we've overshot the capacity of the earth and we can't keep growing. We can't keep using more stuff, so it's on its way down. Or at least it's going to wind back. It's almost like I, the film's going to wind backwards. But no matter what happens, we're going to end up relying on each other. And again, that goes back to sharpening the sword, being a, being a better agent of change, being there for each other, sharing, etc., etc. those kinds of things. I sort of feel when I'm talking to you here on Cortez Island, I mean, you all know this, so why am I telling you this? I'm practicing for when I go out <laughs> into the rest of the world. Anyway, thank you very much. So um, it is 2.30, which is why I'm stopping, but I'm not necessarily rushing off. So if anybody has questions or want, has any other things to comment on, nobody. I really want to credit Karen and Rex and others for having really shaken me the last number of months into the sort of reality of where we're at globally. I haven't paid attention for a handful of years since I had a kid and can't stop doing these other things. But I'm presenting as a community leader in an incredible community that gets this 
send if you and you want if you have something that you want to go out I can make that happen um, I can send out your email or say what you would like to have a conversation around um, I've got a couple other announcements so if you can just be patient for 30 more seconds one uh, Linnea is doing a farm sale right after this so you can support your local agriculture um, by buying your food locally um, two thank you for being here, um, it really, like, I believe that this is the solution, right? Like, here we are together, not always agreeing, not always living the same or voting the same, but being in the same boat, recognizing each other and that little bit of the other person that's in it with you. So, uh, to me, this feels like a miracle, and I thank you because you are part of that miracle. So next week, we can come back for more. Um, we can next week start.
starts a month long with the Deaf and Dying Collective. It's going to be fantastic. Margaret's here. She can answer uh, some of your questions that you have. And tonight, we are celebrating together with um, a movie. Uh, we're doing, what are we doing? Rocky Horror Picture Show, so it's really interactive. It's going to be a lot of fun. There'll be food. So don't forget we have to also have fun together as a community, and I'll see you later. You've been listening to a recording of the Folk U Education Session at the Linnea Farm Education Center featuring Rex Weiler and Reality 102. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie bringing CKTZ listeners this week's offering from Folk University, the People's University of Cortez Island.